everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Hi, everyone. I'm Rivi Frankel, and welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Tvarim is titled Dorahem Sheikh, Messages for a Lifetime. Each episode explores Moshe's educational message for the Jewish people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. Each week's guest will be someone who herself has learned at Matan and is now passing these educational messages on to the next generation of Torah students. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office by telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content. So if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Our Parsha Kitavo begins with the instructions for bringing Bikurim, the first fruits, when the people come into the land. Moshe then commands the people on the actions that they should take immediately after entering Israel, writing the Torah on stones and setting them as a memorial. This is followed by the curses and blessings being read out loud to the whole people from Mount Grizim and Mount Eval. Our Parsha ends with the recounting of the war with Sihon and the three tribes, or rather two and a half tribes, settling on Eva Hayardain, the other side of the Jordan River. My guest today is Rabbi Margot Batwinik. Margot is a graduate of the first cohort of the Matan Bellows Eshkelot program. She is a mashkicha at Midrasha Torviavoda and the director of NCSY Chai for Girls, as well as teaching in various communities around Israel. Margot and her husband, Rev. Josh Batwinik, are currently working together with YU to bring their undergraduate programs to Israel. Margot, it is great to have you here with us. Thank you. It's so great to be here. When you think about Parshat Kitavo, I think that what most people automatically go to are the what seems to be the central focus of the curses and the blessings. And they're so heavy. And even with the balance of the blessings and even with even with that idea of, of adding discussions of joy, um, a lot of this Parsha is very heavy. And so when you and I were, were pre-discussing the episode, I loved that your initial point of departure for this Parsha was actually the Bikurim, was these first fruits and what they mean and how they shed light on the rest of the Parshas. Thank you, Rivi. I think that Kitavo for any Ola, only any Ola is a very emotional Parsha. First of all, it is very often when people make Aliyah and you read this Parsha and you read the Parsha of somebody who is coming and describing all of the difficulties and how, how long it's been, how long they've been dreaming of coming to Israel and all of the tribulations along the way of being in Egypt and of being tricked and how hard it's been. And then they come to Israel and it's not as if it's been such smooth sailing, but finally these fruit come and they're holding the fruit in their hands. And I get emotional every time just thinking, wow, like, there is such a Shehechianu moment that I think is so relatable. That's the story of Arami Ovedavi, but it's also our story today. It's as if this, this release of tension of the difficulties, whether it's the bureaucracy or any, any other, you know, thing coming along the way, but then you stop and you look around, you look at the fruit of Israel, you look at the view out your window and you just want to go back and say, thank you. 
tell me a little bit about the differences between, listen, in while they're going through the desert, they're complaining, this food isn't like Egypt, right? Where are all the cucumber? I always remember like the rash of the watermelon, <laughs> right? That they, the man didn't taste like watermelon. So if there was watermelon in Egypt, then why are Bikurim so significant here in Israel? Yes, that is a great question. And I would add to that, that Bikurim here, it's not the first time that we're hearing about it, right? We've also heard about it, I believe in Parshat Mishpatim and Ketisa and Parshat Korach. And all of a sudden here, we're hearing about it again, but it's different this time. This time we have this entire explanation. This time it's emotional. This time there's so much more behind it. And it's funny that you bring up, you know, thinking about the fruit of that they always spoke about in Egypt because the people that are bringing these Bikurim, they're the children of the people who were always talking about that watermelon in Egypt and how good it was. And probably there was this part of them always that was like, mm, really, mom and dad? Because <laughs> I, I don't remember Egypt being that great, right? And there must have been such a feeling for them holding that fruit of like, wait, no, this this is that freedom that we have been wanting. This is that freedom that we have been looking for. Rev. Aaron Lichtenstein has this incredible sicha from 1996, and he speaks about the amazing experience that it must have been for them to be giving the Bikurim. Because if you think about it, their lives up until this point, all it's been is miraculous, miracle after miracle, right? Their whole lives are supernatural. The way that they experience their food is through the mun. The way that they experience where to go and what to do is through a fire guiding them at night and through a cloud guiding them during the day. And everything that they know is so clearly from Hashem and it's so beautiful. And at the same time, the supernatural for them is natural. That is their everyday life. And even before them, when they were in Egypt, their freedom was also so limited, right? There was so much that they wanted to do, but that they couldn't do. And now, when they enter into Israel, it is the very first time that their actions are going to have such an impact. They're the ones who are finally going to be able to plant their own fruit. And that fruit then is, it's the first time they've ever had an experience like this. Hashem has always been the one who has been basically doing everything for them. And for the first time, they had that independence, which is a little bit scary. But what's so beautiful about what happens at the Bikurim is that they take this fruit and they immediately say, thank you, Hashem. There is none of this this, this could be a repeat story of Kayan, right? This could be another Kayan who plants something and says, wow, look what I did. It used to be Hashem gave us the man, but look how amazing I am. No, look how far we've come. It's as if this closure on Jewish history, where we're giving these korban quote unquote again to Hashem, but this time with such a recognition of where we come from and where we're going. And I think this story makes such an impact because it's something we all kind of want to be doing with our lives. We all have a lot that has happened to us in our past and we want to be able to create these Bikuri moments, these moments where we say, I understand why all of this happened. I understand my past. I understand my future. I see where I'm going here and I'm just grateful for this moment where I am right now. I'm so grateful to Hashem. As you're talking, you're making me think about two things. The first thing that I'm thinking about is the comparison between Egypt and Israel. And that in Egypt, they had the Nile, right? Everything was irrigated by the Nile. And in Israel, it's all about rain. Agriculture right. is all about relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. It's all about seeing Hashem's hand and then partnering with God. And so the process of bringing fruit 
that you grew yourself from the rain that fell and the, this joint venture of Eretz Yisrael and the produce of Eretz Yisrael is even more special when you highlight it or when you contrast it to the relationship that agriculture had in Egypt. And I think especially when you go on to see what the brachot and the klalot, what the blessings and the curses are, so much of it is framed by agricultural disease and the grain is not going to grow and all these horrible things are not going to happen. And we're starting off with a moment of gratitude. So that's like the first thing that when you're talking, I was thinking of. I want to add to that, that I think everything that is going on in Sefer Tvarim over here is exactly that. It is reminding us of our relationship with Hashem and that everything that we're doing here, it's all about a relationship with Hashem. It's actually pretty amazing. In the word Ahava, it appears 23 times, I believe, throughout Sefer Devarim. In Breshit, it also appears 15 times, but it's always about man-to-man. In Shemot, it's twice. In Vayikra, it's twice. We never have it in Bamidbar. But here in Devarim, we have it 23 times and almost exclusively, Rav Sachs brings this up, it is talking about our relationship with Hashem. Everything that we're doing here, the Bikurim, it's all about, it's if, if for even a moment, one could step back and be like, hmm, what are the mitzvot in Parshat Kitabo? Oh, right, Bikurim, Maser, and like, it's possible to think of it in such an unemotional way. But the Torah is so clearly here saying, wait a second, read the text. Everything here for anyone who might think for a moment that Judaism isn't emotional enough, that Judaism, just read the Pesachim of this week's Parsha, where all it's talking about is this relationship of love and of guidance and of how we've been there for each other. And you've done this for us. Now look what we're doing for you. It's, it really is all about a relationship. And I think also, especially as people who don't have the Beit HaMikdash, right? So we we don't actually bring Bikurim, and yet this idea of what relationship looks like and how growing things from the ground and then being thankful is a message that we can still translate into our own lives today. So I love that that connection that you made. Going back to what you were saying before, I love the idea of creating a Bikurim moment, as you phrased it. I, I really like that phraseology. And so much of Judaism, and I think this Parsha really highlights this, so much of Judaism is about experience. It's about having an experience and creating or recreating that experience. So just for an example, the Mishkan, uh, and Rabbi Menachem Liebtag has an amazing share on this, that the Mishkan was supposed to bring you back to a moment on Har Sinai, right? It was supposed to bring us back to that moment of connection and that covenantal aha experience. And then the Beit HaMikdash was supposed to bring us back to that as well. And so you see in Shlomo mirroring, when he dedicates the Beit HaMikdash, he mirrors the dedication of the Mishkan, which mirrors Har Sinai, that it's all about recreating that experience. And we do the same thing with Pesach, right? The Seder is all about getting the kids involved, experience if you're Sephardi, right? Uh, hitting people over the head with leeks uh, or waving the matzah over our heads, all of those things. And Bikurim is is about creating this Bikurim moment. And it's also the text that we use in the Seder. And it's also uh, this kind of jumping off point for recounting Jewish history, but then continuing Jewish history ourselves. And I think wow. we see that also with the curses, right? We come into Israel, we write the Torah, there's a physical doing something there. And then when they come to Hargrizim and Harival, They've set up a stage as performance art and they <laughs> split up this. It, it, it's a whole production. And that's so much about what Judaism is, I think, and what Bikurim is part of. 
Yes, uh, Hashem is, ooh, I feel like that's a scary sentence to start with, but Hashem is, he's a a masterful, he is the masterful educator. (laughs) Like it is so clear how much of the Torah is meant to be experiential education, right? It is Hashem saying, I want to give you experience after experience after experience, as if to say our lives, your lives as the Jewish people, they are grounded in our collective memory. And it's amazing. I remember the first time I the first person who pointed it out to me was actually Rabbi Dina Rock. She was telling me this was when I was in high school and she was sharing with us, but she's also written it up in an article if anyone wants to check it out on Why You Torah. But she speaks about how when you go through the Jewish holidays and you step back for a second, you realize that, wait, they all happen in the same year, right? It's really weird. Like you would think there's a lot of amazing stories that happen. You would think that you would spread it out, but it's like, no, Pesach, that's it, Yat Mitzrayim. Sukkot, that was like the next day. Shavuos, that's when we got the Torah. Chet Ha'egel, that's, that's um, Yom Kippur, right? Meaning when, if you go around and she goes through every single holiday and shows, wait a second, they're actually all coming from the same year as if to say, yeah, we're taking this one seminal year of the Jewish people, this unbelievable, life-changing, crazy year. And I can't have every single generation experience it, but actually we're going to try to, right? We're going to try and take the messages from every single holiday. And it's so cool. Like all of Judaism does that. All of our rituals are really just things that we're meant to experience because we're supposed to feel it. And if we don't feel it, then we're missing the point. I think that's also what Bikurim is all about. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he speaks throughout Sefer Devarim, first of all, he is Rabbeinu here to the max. He is the ultimate teacher. He is the ultimate parent, the ultimate friend giving good advice. You feel Moshe himself being so emotional, even in the opening words of this week's Parsha, the Hayak Kitavo El Haaretz, right? You hear him thinking Kitavo because you're going to go when you go, by the way, because I'm not going, <laughs> right? It's almost, it's you feel that underlying sorrow and confusion throughout all of his speaking. Moshe actually uses the word Shema 92 times throughout all of Parsha Kitavo. And when we hear Shema, I don't think it's just this, here, listen to this command. It's so clearly Moshe as the educator, Moshe as the fatherly figure to the Jewish people saying to them, please just listen, hear this, Feel it, realize it, internalize it. I don't want you to need to experience another Yitziat Mitzrayim in order to get the messages that you're supposed to be kind to the Geri and to the Almanah, that you're supposed to be kind to the stranger and to the widows and to the orphans, right? It's him saying, I I need you to not need to re-experience the mistakes of the Miraglim, the mistakes of the spies. I need you just to now go and just appreciate Israel for what it is, right? You could hear him sort of begging them to try and internalize Judaism and everything that it's saying and a recognition that everything Judaism is doing is seeking to give you this experience, but only if you appreciate it. Meaning if we were to step back as I feel like as a take home message for me from this week's Parsha really is Judaism is so chazak. Judaism is so powerful, but am I going to let it penetrate, penetrate my soul, penetrate into my heart, into my emotions, into the way that we live our lives? It is all here for us, but it's so easy just to, as an example, give Bikurim without feeling the Bikurim, right? But Judaism's not letting us do that. It's saying, I want you to do Pesach and I want you to feel it and all the messages that come along with it. And I want you to daven. And this is all of Nevi'im also is just telling us if you give those korbano without the emotions behind it, you're just, you're just missing the point. And I, I think that this is that example of Moshe saying to them, like, guys, I experienced it all. 
I'm no longer going to be with you to be able to kind of knock this into your heads. But please, please just feel it and internalize it. One of the things that I love about the experience that is created is that it always is based on text and history, right? It's not just having an experience, but it goes back to this is the text that you're going to say. This is the, the piece that you're going to say. And I'm curious, as somebody who does a lot of you, were, like we mentioned the NCSY program or all of the different things when you were a JLIC uh, couple in, in Herzliya on IDC, you create a lot of experiential programming. And I'm curious for you, when we have such a good template, and at the same time, I think that at least in my experience, today's younger students, meaning even college age students are so experienced out. And I'll, I'll kind of, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Sometimes you'll, uh, I'll do a hike in the Golan and my students will be like, wow, this kind of looks like Disneyland, right? <laughs> like, they're, they're so used wow. to things being manufactured for them or the experiences being manufactured that creating experience is sometimes difficult. And then pairing it with text is even more difficult. And I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about what your process is when you try and model these experiences that Moshe as Rabbeinu and that God Lahavdil even more so shows us are so important. Wow, that is such a great question. And I'm curious really to hear what you have to say as somebody who also you spend your life giving people experiences throughout Israel, throughout all of your tours, showing people parts of Israel in ways that they have never seen before. So I'd really love to hear what you have to say also. I would say that the question is better than the answer. I think our job as educators is to try and give everyone as many experiences as possible because we have no idea which experiences are going to be those life-changing ones. At the end of the summer, the summer on NTSY Hives, this new summer program through NTSY Israel for English-really girls, it was so wonderful. And we're talking to them afterwards and they're all talking about, so beautiful, how the summer changed their lives, right? And the Madrichud and I, we were looking at each other and we're like, hmm, it's so interesting. <laughs> I want We want to challenge you guys back because you're telling us that it changed your life, but do you really know that it changed your life yet? Let's talk in a year at reunion. Well, we could do sooner than that, but <laughs> let's talk. You, it's, you only know if something's life-changing if it changes your life later, right? You could have an experience that was so mundane that didn't mean anything to you, and yet you find yourself, and we all have this, coming back to it, something, a comment that someone said to you, something you saw someone do time and time and time again, and yet you can have an experience like a Matan Torah experience, and yet still do Chita Egel just a few days later, right? Meaning something could be a Disneyland, and you could forget about it, and something could be so little and make an impact. There are definitely ways to do experience education right there are ways to do it better but in terms of those life-changing experiences i think it's our job to put them out there to throw out all of those arrows and to hope that some of them stick yeah i love that i think if i were going to do a phd what i would really love to study and what i would love to create is what is the definition of emotional manipulation in education wow and the reason that i would love to study that is i think that sometimes we want to we want so badly for people to have that love and experience that we have that we try and create moments where we're forcing them to feel something as opposed to allowing them to feel something organically. So for example, I, I know a lot of tour guides and, and the truth is I was like this myself for a very long time that the mark of a successful tour on Mount Herzl, our national military cemetery, was if my participants cried. Right. But if I make the definition 
of my success based on them feeling an emotion, then I have to have them feel that emotion for me to be successful. And then it's not really about their emotion, it's about me and what I've created. Wow. And I think that that's also part of the message of Bikurim is that Bikurim isn't brought on Pesach when God took us out and we didn't really do anything. Bikurim is not brought on Sukkot when we were sitting in in these Ananeha Kavod and Hashem was protecting us from the desert. And again, we didn't do anything. Bikurim was are, are brought at a moment where we're partnering with God and our involvement and our essence as people and our own identity is part of the story. And I think that when we look at experiences, a huge part of what Moshe is doing here is he's telling the people, here's the reality of what's going to happen. What are you going to do with it? Right? In next week's Parsha, we have Bacharta Bachayim. You're going to choose life. And the idea that Moshe's not telling them, feel this. Moshe's not telling them, this is what you have to, you, you have to love God. Moshe's telling them, God loves you. Here are the actions that you should take to be able to be in that relationship. And then God's going to respond to you. And then you're going to respond and God's going to respond. And it's all about, you should feel this in your heart and in your mind. But ultimately what you feel and what you do is up to you. That's very powerful. And I would add to that, how two people can experience the exact same thing and yet respond so differently, right? If we take the Bikurim for a second, right? When was the last time in Jewish history when we had people looking at the fruit of Eretz Yisrael but responding very differently? It is amazing. Rev. Elhanan Samet actually brings this up. He's providing proof for the approach of the Arizal and Rabbi Zemba, who's quoting him and who makes this strong connection, these strong, there's unbelievable textual parallel connections between the Bikurim and Chay Hamaraglim. It's, it's just, it's so wild to see. We, and we, we know that these Miraglim are coming and they take these fruit. And yes, they too, just like in the Bikurim, are going to say that it's Eretz Avachalabudvash, but they turned the entire nation into a state of hysteria, right? These were a people who experienced the same powerful moment that those who are going to give the Bikurim are about to experience, feeling, tasting, holding that fruit of Eretz Yisrael for the very first time. And yet those Miraglim, they just weren't ready to accept the powerful message that was right in front of them. First of all, it's amazing to note that the time of year when the Miraglim go on their mission, it starts off by telling us, right? It, it literally tells us it's, it was those time of the Bikurim. And then textually, when we take a look, these Pesukim are so parallel, it's unbelievable. But separate from the time of year, there are a number of linguistic parallels between the two Parshiyot, right? When Moshe sends the spies on their mission, he says to them, that you should take from the fruits of the land. And of course, in the commandment, to bring the Bikurim to the Makom, where Hashem, to the place where Hashem Shrina is going to be in Zavarim, it tells us in our Parsha, Right? Okay, you might not be so convinced yet, but we have here also when the spies come back, they say, We arrived at the land to which you sent us, right? And of course, the Mikra Bukurim, in, in the Mikra Bukurim, we say, I have arrived at the land, right? It's actually happened at this land, which Hashem's 
promise that he would give to our forefathers. And of course, finally, and I think most powerfully, the spies describe the land in this famous phrase as Vigam Right? And what a difference now in the Mikrabi Kareem when we come and we say, Hashem, He gave us this land. He gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. Those, that the only other time when it is used before now is when the Moroccan were speaking about it. And overall, even if that line was positive, overall, this is meant to be a negative description that is coming out of them. It's something that they're looking at this fruit and they are terrified. And yet the Mikrapi Karim is a time when the Jewish people are coming and they see that very same fruit. No, they are not terrified. They're not scared. They're proud. And they have a realization that they are now part of this story of the Jewish people, that they are now part of this land flowing with milk and honey, right? And we so awesome, often think of the and the punishment afterwards, those 40 years as this terrible punishment because it was such a tragedy what happened. And how could these, how could they, not just the Moraglim, the people, the fact that they responded that way means they were in on it, right? How could they not um, see what was right in front of them, right? How, how, why weren't they all like colleagues? And it's so clear in Hashem's response that they just weren't ready. <laughs> they, they, You can give sometimes people the most powerful experience, but if they're not ready to hear it, they're just not going to hear it. They needed another 40 years. It was just, you can imagine, too much in one year to go from slaves to the Jewish people receiving the Torah to all of a sudden entering Eretz Israel. They couldn't, they couldn't handle all of that change. They could not switch their mentalities that quickly. And they just need more time. But their kids, their kids are the ones who are taking those very fruit, going and saying, Hashem, we get this. We know exactly what's happening here. And we are so proud to be the culmination of this story, right? And you can just imagine even their parents looking down on them and saying, thank you, my children, right? Because we messed up, but look, you really were able to make it into the land of Israel. I love that. I love the idea of the generations being able to pick up where the generation before it left. I think often it kind of feels like as we've gone through history, that everybody before us has done all the things, but <laughs> we get to kind of continue their story based where they left off and, and really bring them that, like, as they say, Yiddish Anachas, that, that joy for the places that they weren't able to. There's another place in this week's Parsha that I think is very experiential and ties into what it is that we're, we're talking about. And that's the commandment for the Jews to write the Torah when they get to Israel on stone. And we know that it's actually really interesting as we get to the end of Vayelach, it says that uh, Moshe tells Hashira Hazot to the people. And it's a machloket, it's, it's a disagreement about what the song is that he's telling them. Is it the song of Ha'azinu? Right. Uh, the poem that he writes, or is it the whole Torah? And so when they come into Eretz Yisrael, they're, they're taking this whole Torah that is this masterpiece, and they themselves are writing it. God's masterpiece is being taken by the people in the land and being set in stone. And it's another experiential expression of partnership that we see in this week's Parsha. I do think it's very powerful that the Jewish people are then asked to write it down, 
right? There's something, I'm a big journaler. I don't know if any of the listeners are, but ever since I was actually in ninth grade and I'd lead journaling sessions for adults around the country, reflection sessions, where you just give yourself these series of questions and reflect on your life. And there is something so powerful about the act of taking time to actually write things down. There's a certain investment, especially in today's day and age of social media, where we do things so quickly, we type way faster than we could ever write. And the act of writing not that they had typing back then, but it's a certain filtering that really allows you to think about what you're what you're saying and to internalize it. You ha- you have to because your hand can only move so quickly. And I think there's something so powerful about the fact that the Jewish people were asked to write it down, right? To write it down, to write it down in stone, to make it a part of their lives. What you're talking about with journaling. It reminds me of what the whole Devarim is, right? Chazal call it Mishnah Torah, this almost, if you will, repetition, which I think is a really bad translation, but <laughs> it's this reprocessing of certain events through Moshe's lens and his final address. It's that also, it's that processing. So not only did they have that processing when they came and when they wrote it, but that's actually what Moshe has been doing through all of these speeches that he's giving the people. Really, I love that. And I want to add to that because it's fascinating to think about when Chazal calls Sefer Devarim Mishnah Torah, where that phrase is actually coming from. Of course, like you said, it's not just a repeat, right? That phrase actually comes in Devarim when the king is commanded that he needs to write a Sefer Torah for himself. He needs to have his own Mishnah Torah. And maybe this is true of a lot of people, but it happens to be that's one of my favorite mitzvot, because I find it to be so relatable. Meaning the king, he's he's the role model, right? He's the role model of the Jewish people. He is somebody who everyone's looking up to. He is the person who stands up and reads Hakel in front of everyone and proclaims the right? He is the one who is the definition of he, he's the role model telling us to do right? It's him. And yet at the same time, what's going on here when he's being told, write your own Torah, right? As a baseline, I think the, the usual understanding is that, well, when you're king, you have too much power and that is going to corrupt you. And therefore you need to write a Torah in order to remind yourself of your values. But I think it's something more than that. I think there is this idea that for the king, it's one thing when you're putting out something to the world. And it's another thing to recognize that the king is going through different things himself. And those things are going to challenge him. He is going to have some difficulties. And through that, he's going to need to write his own Torah. If I can share a story, when I was in college, I remember thinking to myself, okay, I probably shouldn't be in Jewish education because I, I had all of these questions probably from my year in Israel for better or for worse, where I was questioning the divine origin of the Torah. I was questioning the halachic process and I was having these really big questions where I said to myself, you know, maybe, maybe I just shouldn't be in Jewish education. I was, I was absolutely loving Stern and loving the legacy program that I was in. And at the same time, I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to be the person who's giving this over to the world, if I'm going to be in this leadership position like the king is, at the same time, how can I be having these questions to myself? And it's so funny because I remember the answer that a mentor of mine had given me saying that really stuck with me, where she said, don't worry, you know, right now you're you're 19 years old, but you think when you're 
30, 40, 50, 60, you think as you go throughout life, you're always going to be questioning so much. You're going to figure it out. Just, you're just, you love, you, you love Judaism. You love teaching, you know, go for it. And I remember thinking to myself, that's probably true. Like I'm not always going to be questioning. <laughs> and it's so crazy fast forwarding, you know, over a decade later. And I'm like, wait a second. I might not have those same questions, but I'm definitely still questioning. And I think it is so powerful, not just to see this Mishnah Torah, that as this command for the king to write his own Torah, to be one that keeps him in line, like an educator who might become so full of themselves that then they need to remind themselves really to that they need to be a humble person. It's not just about that. It's also this recognition. It's this permission that you're allowed to have your own Torah. You're allowed to present values to the world that you know to be true even if you're not 100% there yet yourself. You're allowed to be proud and proclaim with authenticity the deep values of the Torah and Hashem's values and everything that Judaism is all about, while also still kind of figuring things out for yourself. Maybe and sometimes it's even appropriate to share that with your students, with your friends, with your family in a way that's being honest. And of course, with still keeping those boundaries, you don't want to overshare, but that, I think that's exactly the point, that you're allowed to have your own Torah. I do think it's it's so important for every single one of us to explore for ourselves to write for ourselves and to find ourselves just like those who are giving the Bikurim are to find ourselves within this chain of Jewish history. I don't think it's possible to, I think that Judaism is set up in a way that it is impossible to continue to teach and continue to believe, to continue to have your amuna if you're not continuously reconsidering it as if rewriting it, personalizing it for yourself. There's too much that happens in our lives. We just experience as as we grow, as we go through different life experiences, whether it's smaller things to huge things that are happening, we need to keep rewriting. And I think that is what this Mishnah Torah, that's what Sefer Devarim is all about. right? And that's what ha what's happening in Bikurim. That is somebody coming and saying, wait a second, I'm not just going to do this mitzvah. I need to realize it as part of my role within Jewish history. I need to personalize this. The Torah is charging us with taking Judaism and saying, personalize it, write it for yourself. That is what this religion is all about. And bringing it back like you did to be Kurim, if we look at the first Pasuk of the Parsha, when you're going to come to the land, right? And God is giving you your Nachala, when you in, that you should inherit it and that you should settle it. Right. And we all know that the Torah is very uh, particular with its words. And this idea is exactly what you're saying is that you need to take possession of this gift that God is giving you. You need to settle wow. it. And people didn't settle it when they first came into Israel. Right. right. It took them a long time. It took Kibusha Aretz, conquering the land, took a long time. And then we had the whole chapter of Shoftim, which ended up in a mess. And then we have kings that sometimes were good and sometimes weren't. The whole process takes time. And I think it goes back to the story that that you so beautifully shared about yourself, which is that we're all still going to have questions. It takes time to take possession of that gift that God has given us. And I think that just that even that first pasuk of the, of the Parsha really already sets that out for us, that there's a process in, in 
taking ownership of the gift that God gave us. It's pretty amazing even up until now to think about where we've come. What we have in this week's Parsha is going to be the fourth covenant that the Jewish people have had. The first one that we had, that one was with Noah. That one was one that was kind of just placed onto Noah. He was told what to do. Then we have our next one with Avram, with the Brit Bein of Atarim, where he has this action. He has the Brit Milah. He's slowly coming on as a partner. We have Matan Torah, where we as a nation, we were in on it. Nasa and Ishma, we tell God that we are going to have a role in it. But over here in Parsha Kitavo, when this comes up, this is it. This is us saying, okay, we are going to need to be independent here. I think it also goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the goals of experiential education, right? Is that by setting up a system of mitzvot that is about experience, even for people who didn't have the experience, recreating experience, it's about giving them independence, right? It's about creating people who have their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own experiences. And, and ultimately, I think that is what the goal is from Moshe as our teacher is that each of us should be independent and each of us should be somebody who can have an experience and then follow through what that experience means without somebody needing to say, this is what you need to do now. And so I think it all kind of comes back full circle. Yes. And it reminds me of a story of, again, because I mentioned so many of my high school teachers, I'll mention another uh, with Mrs. Sheena Goldberg when she was my teacher in high school. And I remember, I think I was a sophomore in 10th grade. And I remember I had watched a music video of a song that was very popular at the time. And I was so shocked because it was so inappropriate. I, I, I just didn't, I hadn't thought about the words. I wasn't thinking about it. And all of a sudden it's put into this music video. And I, for myself was like, I, I really feel like I shouldn't be watching this. And I was upset at my high school for not saying something. Why didn't they tell us that you have to be more careful with your music videos, right? Why, why didn't they tell us that music videos were us, right? And I went over to Ms. Ms. Goldberg and I said to her, you know, my note should make an announcement letting us know that like we need to be more careful because why aren't you guys telling us these things? And I remember, I don't know if she remembers this or if she'll be listening to this, but I remember she looked at me with such shock. And I, I remember she said to me, Margo, do you not feel, do you not realize that that's everything that we've been trying to teach you? <laughs> yes, that is Judaism. You need to figure it out for yourself. We can't tell you every single book and every single song and every single piece of clothing and everything that's going to happen in your life, what is going to be Jewish values and what aren't. But this is something that you're meant to figure out for yourself to take this back throughout the Torah, we're given all of these commandments. But in the end of the day, I think the message here of Sefer Dvarim and the message here through the Bikurim is Moshe trying to tell us all, but guys, I need you to get it yourself. I need you to be able to take all of these messages. I'm not gonna be able to remind you every single time. I need you to be able to take these messages and decide which as an example, music you're going to listen to, which neighbors you're going to speak to, which practices you think are going to be ones that bring you closer to Hashem and which ones that are going to be ones that are going to take you further from Hashem. And that is a role that's on every single one of us. Yeah, and I, you know what? I really hope that we will get that message. You know, I think that uh, that it's, it's been a long time since Moshe gave us this speech and i think that <laughs> well wow. we learn that again every generation sometimes we learn it better and sometimes we we don't learn it as well and i think that we will get there 
we will get there Be'ezrat Hashem. And hopefully very soon we will be bringing our own Bikurim. You know, you've just moved Mazalto from your new maybe fruit garden, uh, bringing you. your own fruit. Um, I like that song, right? Ani baniti bayit and ani natati kerem and all these things. So we should all have the the schut, the merit and the privilege to be able to grow our own metaphorical produce and our own physical produce here together in the land of Israel. So Margo, thank you so much for your time tonight. It has been a pleasure talking Torah with you. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.